Open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 13, and I'll be beginning in verse 6. The prophet says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty it will come. Therefore all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another, and their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. Turn now, if you would, to the book of Revelation, chapter 20. And I will be reading beginning in verse 11. Revelation 20, verse 11. John says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Well, we are winding up our series that uh, I began some months ago, actually, on the last days, that I entitled the series, Be Prepared. And uh, we began looking at the last days before Christ's return, But in the last couple of sermons, we've turned our attention to the return of Christ himself. And two sermons ago, I preached on that day, the return of the king, when Christ uh, returns to earth in triumph to claim his throne as its rightful, as, as the rightful king of the earth. And Uh, An event that's associated with that that we looked at last week is the resurrection of the dead and the great hope that we have as God's people um, in the resurrection that we look forward to. Another event that is associated with that day is what the Old Testament prophets called the day of the Lord. And that is what we're going to be thinking about and talking about 
today. And that day, the day of the Lord, is the same as the day when Christ returns. In fact, sometimes in Scripture it is called the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And from the passages that we read this morning, you get a sense that there is some dread that's attached to the day of the Lord. And sometimes it's even just simply called the day. And the point there, I think, the emphasis there is that there is a day that is going to be the culmination of history. And all of human history can be boiled down to the day. The day of the Lord. And the prophets, of course saw only dimly what was made more clear by the coming of Christ and the promise of his return. And what Paul says, what Paul calls the the parousia or the parousia, the, the, the unveiling of the glory of God in Christ when he returns to claim his rightful throne. So as we looked at the return of Christ and the implications of his return for us last week, we notice that um, there is great joy and anticipation that we ought to attach to his return and his coming. Paul said to Titus, and and, um, there are other places where Paul says similar things, he says, we are looking forward to his glorious appearing. It's a day we ought to be looking forward to. In fact, we ought to be living toward that day and focused on that day. The psalmist says in Psalm 98, verses 7 through 9, he says, Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Don't you long for a judge that will judge with righteousness and truth and equity and justice? At the same time, as the passages that we read reflect, the prophets also speak of that day as a dark day of great foreboding and doom. So Isaiah says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. Every human heart will melt before him. They will be dismayed and pangs of agony will seize them. The prophet Amos in chapter 5 verses 18 and 19 says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion only to be accosted by a bear. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? And gloom with no brightness in it? How do you reconcile those two starkly different pictures of the same day? A day of joy and victory and triumph and a day of darkness and gloom. 
It's important that we understand and take seriously both sides of this, of this coin. On the one hand, it is a day of victory and triumph when the true king will come to set all things right and to establish his kingdom of justice and righteousness and peace. But at the very same time, the very act of setting all things right necessitates that he deal with sin and evil once and for all. And so the prophets say the judge is coming, the day is coming when evil will be brought to an end. And we may look forward to that day on one side, but insofar as we are perpetrators of evil, it is a day of dread as well. Because God is going to set all things right. So it's a day of triumph. It's also a day of judgment. It's a day, Jesus says, of dividing. When the sheep will be divided from the goats, and when those who Jesus knows as his own will be divided from those that he does not know. The parable that he tells in Matthew 24, he says he speaks of the master of the house, and he is the master of the house that has been away on a long journey, but he will return, and when he does, every servant will be called to give an account for what they have done and what they have failed to do. And another parable that he tells in Matthew 13 of the wheat and the weeds that are allowed to grow in the same field for a season. But a reckoning day is coming. The harvest will be gathered. The wheat will be brought into the barn and the weeds will be burned. Picture of utter separation from God. And that's the scene that John describes in Revelation chapter 20, this passage that we read, which is similar to another passage that uh, is from the prophet Daniel. In fact, Daniel chapter 7, if you go back and look at that, you would be um, um, amazed at the, at the similarities between these two passages. John sees God seated on his throne, and all the dead, great and small, are brought before him to be judged. He talks about the sea giving up its dead, and uh, that's really a picture of those who die but aren't buried. He's saying nobody escapes this time. Everybody. It doesn't matter if you're buried in the ground or if you were lost at sea. You will be risen. Death and Hades will give up their dead, John says. No one will escape. Paul says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Last week I mentioned that great hope that we have that every believer will join Christ in his triumphant procession as he comes to claim his throne. And I said, you will be there if you are a believer in Jesus. 
In the same way, every human being, believers and unbelievers alike, will be called to stand before that throne, and you and I will be there to face the judgment of our holy Creator. John describes the books, and Daniel mentions them as well, in which are written an accounting of our lives. And those books will be opened. Verse 13, he says, And we will be judged by what was written in the books according to what we have done. The idea of having to give an account of everything that you have done is not a very pleasant thought, is it? Most people in our culture, though, if they think about divine judgment at all, I find have a pretty cavalier attitude toward it. They assume that they're good people and they kind of, I get the impression they kind of expect God to just kind of pat them on the back and say, well, you know, you did your best. But I fear they're in for a rude awakening because that is not at all the way that Scripture depicts the judgment that we must all face. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus says to his disciples, Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Ouch. Think about that in relation to Genesis chapter 3. Remember what Adam and Eve did when they sinned? They covered themselves up. They hid. And human beings have been hiding from each other. Hiding from God. And hiding from ourselves ever since. But Jesus says, The day is coming when all that we have used to try to hide behind and cover ourselves up will be taken away. Nothing is covered that will not be revealed. Does that send a shiver down your spine? Every careless word, every wasted moment, every selfish, lustful, vengeful thought, and the list could go on and on and on. If we really thought about it, I think that all of us would acknowledge that our lives could not stand up to that kind of scrutiny. No one is going to stand before the judgment throne of God and accuse Him of being unfair or unjust in His judgment. All of the lies, all of the pretense will be stripped away and we will have to face our true selves. And every one of us will be forced to acknowledge by the testimony of our own actions and our own words and our own thoughts that no one is righteous, not even one. The prophet Malachi asked this question, 
Who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? Makes me think of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. Remember when Isaiah saw the Lord God Almighty in the temple? Do you remember what he did? He cried out, Woe is me! I am undone! For I am a man of unclean lips. And those words reflect that, that the, the Hebrew that we've translated, I am undone, essentially mean, I am coming apart. I am falling apart. I cannot stand here. It's a pretty grim picture, isn't it? Aren't you glad you came today? <laughs> You might get the impression that what John describes here contradicts the message of the gospel. And I've had people ask me that and struggle with that. And I have wrestled with it some myself. But it's important, you know, John says we are all going to be judged by what we have done. And yet in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says... And he insists, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not the result of works. And so we're left with this tension. How do we square these two seemingly contradictory messages? But notice what John goes on to say here in Revelation chapter 20. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 12. He says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne to be judged, and books were opened, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And those whose names were not found written in the book of life were thrown into the lake of fire, which is a symbol of eternal separation from God. John is describing that day of division that I mentioned earlier, when, as Jesus said, the wheat will be harvested and the weeds will be gathered for destruction, and we will all stand before God. And we will all be judged on the basis of what we have done in this life. And we will all be found wanting. But while our works will be judged, we will not be divided on the basis of what we have done. We will be divided on the basis of where we have put our trust. Let me say that again. We will not be divided on the basis of what we have done. We will be divided on the basis of where we have put our trust. Those who lived trusting in themselves will have only themselves to depend upon on the day of judgment. And having depended on their own merit, they will be judged by their own merit. And they will be condemned. Those who are not condemned will escape condemnation not because they are better than the others or because they have more merit than the others, 
but because they are not trusting in themselves at all. They have come to the realization that, as Paul says, all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. They have come to the realization that they cannot satisfy God's righteous standard by their own merits. They have recognized their need for a Savior and they have put their trust not in what they could do for themselves, but in what Christ did for them when He gave Himself as a sacrifice for sins. And because they are not trusting in themselves, they will have an advocate who stands with them in the hour of judgment, who testifies to the Father on their behalf that they belong to Him. Their names are written in His book. In fact, earlier in Revelation, that book, the book of life, is called the Lamb's Book of Life. It contains the names of those who are His. And though all are guilty as charged, Jesus will testify to the Father that the record of sins that stands against those who are His has already been satisfied. The penalty has been paid on the cross. And the ledger no longer reads condemned. Instead, the ledger reads, the debt is canceled. It has been paid. And that is the gospel. Amen? Amen. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is the gift of God. Not on the basis of our works and our merit, but on the basis of His work and His merit. I love that line from the old hymn, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. The line says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. That is the difference. That is the dividing line on the day of judgment. So I want to close with three points of application. First, you may be listening today and you're a believer, but you still struggle with guilt and regret. You grieve over the mistakes that you have made and ways that you have failed. And perhaps there are ways that you have failed miserably. Perhaps you are struggling with sin in the present and you look at your life and you wonder how you can possibly escape condemnation when you stand before your Creator and every secret is exposed. Cling to the cross. The cross is your refuge in the day of judgment. Your debt has been paid. The ledger of charges against you has been canceled. 
Christ has clothed you in robes of righteousness. And though your sins and my sins are as scarlet, he has washed us white as snow. The psalmist says in Psalm 130, If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness. And in Psalm 103, it just strikes me how Psalm 103 speaks so much to what God has done in Christ so long before Christ did it. And yet the truths are there because of what Christ has done for us. And the psalmist says, God does not deal with us as our sins deserve. Or repay us according to our transgressions. Instead, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows how weak we are. And he remembers That we are only dust. So if you are struggling with regret and guilt and sorrow over sin, let those truths sink into your soul. Let them set you free from those burdens of guilt and fear and shame. And then rise to a new life, to renewed life of obedience and joy in the grace that we have been given. The second point of application is a reminder that God has given us an urgent task as believers. And the importance of that task in view of what we have reflected on this morning cannot be overstated. He has called us to go into the world with the message of the gospel, warning people that judgment day is coming and that we must all give an account to God and declaring the good news that God has provided a way for the debt of sin to be canceled. That there is one who offers himself as an advocate to testify on their behalf before the Father. And appealing to people that if they only put their trust in him and in what they have done, what he has done for them, they will not be condemned on the day of judgment. But they will have life in his name. There are so many things that press in on us. And we look around us at the world and we are concerned about all kinds of different things. There's so many things that we feel like we need to do and so many things that we think are important. But there is nothing more important than this. Souls are passing into eternity and they will stand before their maker. No matter what else we might do for them, 
they need the opportunity to take seriously that this day is coming for them and that God has provided a way for them to be forgiven. So while there are all kinds of things that we are concerned about and focused on, first and foremost, we have been entrusted with the words of life. And if our first priority is not the gospel, then our priorities are out of whack. And we need to reorder those priorities. Finally, you may be listening to this message and you are still trusting in yourself and in your own merit to justify you on the day of judgment. Maybe you've never really taken seriously the prospect of standing before a holy God who will uncover every secret of your heart. Or maybe you're afraid of Judgment Day. So you're working hard to be good, going to church, being as religious as you can, living a moral life and trying your best to be nice to people in the hope that it will be enough. I plead with you to take seriously John's warning. If you insist on trusting in your own goodness, you will have nothing else to stand on but your own goodness on the day of judgment, and it will not be enough. No one will endure on the basis of their own merit. And no one is going to accuse God of being unfair. But there is one who offers himself to be your advocate, Jesus Christ. His merit and his alone is sufficient. Surrender yourself to him And trust yourself to his righteousness. And he will preserve you by his righteousness on the day of judgment. There's an old hymn, one of my favorite hymns actually, that I came across it because uh, one of my favorite Christian artists, Fernando Ortega, sings it. But it's a hymn that goes way back, I think, to the... To the 1800s or perhaps even the 1700s, it's called Come Ye Sinners. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus, ready, stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. Come ye thirsty, come and welcome God's free bounty. Glorify true belief and true repentance. Every grace that brings you nigh. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Feel him prostrate in the garden 
On the ground, your maker lies. On the bloody tree, behold him. Sinner, will this not suffice? Yes, it will suffice. It is enough. Lo, the incarnate God ascended, pleads the merit of his blood. Venture on him. Venture wholly. Let no other trust intrude. He pleads the merit of his blood. Trust in what he has done. Rest your life in him, brothers and sisters. Surrender your life to him. He is enough. He is enough. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that even now by your spirit, you will be at work in our hearts and at work in our minds to show us those things. As as David prayed in the Psalms, show me my inner sins, the things that I don't even know. Father, help us to see them because it's in revealing yourself and revealing our true selves to us. That is the process by which you will lead us through and we will ultimately be done with sin forever. And so we ask that you will show us as hard as it is, as fearful as it is, as grievous as it is. Help us to see ourselves and our sin as you see us. But then, Father, I pray that the truth of the gospel would sink deep into our hearts. That though we deserve condemnation, you do not deal with us as our sins deserve. And you have provided us an advocate. And it's on the basis of his merit, not ours, the merit of his blood, that we will stand. Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you for the cross. Dear Jesus Christ, thank you for what you have done for us. May we go in the victory of the cross. And may we declare with courage and boldness the hope that you have given to the world. That they would not perish, but have everlasting life. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.